Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. There's a couple things that you hire an agent for. One, obviously, is the exposure. We generate more exposure. The second one is the negotiating skills. And I think the third one is positioning from a pricing perspective, and then also positioning within the realtor community. Real quick, before the episode, I want to give you a gift of 25% off, and that gift actually is from TransUnion Smart Move. Go to tenantscreening.com, create a free account, enter the code FAIRLESS at checkout for 25% off your next screening, because as landlords, we tend to be most concerned with getting paid on time. You might also know that hundreds of thousands of landlords have to deal with the headaches of evicting tenants each year. Evicting a tenant can be painful, costing as much as $10,000 in court costs and legal fees, and take as long as four weeks to complete. What if there's a trusted way to help prevent the headaches of dealing with evicting a tenant? Make the smart move right from the start. Smart Move's online tenant screening solution can help you quickly understand if you're getting a reliable tenant, which will help you avoid potential problems such as non-payment and evictions. For a limited time, listeners of this podcast are invited to try Smart Move tenant screening for 25% off. Here's how Smart Move can help you find your next great tenant. Make a more informed decision with Smart Move's proprietary credit score built specifically for tenant screening, which predicts evictions 15% better than a typical credit score. Reduce non-payment risk with Smart Move's Income Insights Report, which enables you to analyze the applicant's income within minutes and determine if additional income verification is needed. Get critical information quickly with a full credit report, criminal background, and eviction history report. With over 5 million screenings completed, SmartMove can help you make a better leasing decision for your rental property. If you own a rental property, SmartMove can help you identify the right renter from the start so you can avoid the problems of non-payment or evictions. Don't put yourself at risk. Go to tenantscreening.com, create a free account, enter the code FAIRLESS at checkout for 25% off your next screening. With TransUnion Smart Move, you'll get great reports, great convenience, great tenants. Best ever listeners, got a special segment for you. And every now and then I'll be doing these special segments. When I come across something that I learn in my entrepreneurial journey, and I think it will be helpful for you as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And more importantly, I hope you get some value from it that you can then apply to your life. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. We are here in Cincinnati filming this live. And the purpose of today's conversation and this panel is to talk about Cincinnati specifically. 
So if you're not interested in Cincinnati, go ahead and listen to something else, watch another video. If you are interested in Cincinnati, then don't hang out with us for a little while. So we have a panel today. We're going to be talking to each of these three gentlemen about last year compared to this year, just briefly, and then most importantly, where they see the market headed in Cincinnati relative to their respective focuses. So first, let's see, we've got Slocum Reed. Slocum is a realtor and became a house hacker in 2014, currently living in a second house hack, bought and sold 34 flips and 24 buy and hold properties, totaling 75 units for himself and his clients, owns and manages 18 rental units, with 24 under contract to close in August. That's a big August. Congratulations on that. All three of these gentlemen are based in Cincinnati, so I won't repeat that. Then we got Peter Chabri. He's a realtor for the Chabri Group. Yes, sir. And the Chabri Group has sold over $60 million in real estate each of the past two years, primarily consisting of single-family homes valued under $500,000. And then we got Kurt Weil. How you doing, Kurt? Good. I just found out Kurt's uncle is the former president of Junior Achievement that I'm a board member on. So I, I just learned I know his uncle. Cincinnati's such a small town, isn't it? It ends up that way. Ends up that way. So Kurt is a mortgage broker with Ziffel Mortgage Group. Ziffel Mortgage Group. That's a tough one to pronounce. In July of 2009 alone, Kurt is set to close on over $16 million in real estate loans. Uh, so with that being said, how about let's kick it off. We don't need to go into areas of focus or anything for background since I just said it. So what were you doing last year compared to this year that's different, Slocum? Sure. So sales-wise, as an agent, I'd say the biggest difference with, well, first of all, I do most of my work at this point with investors who are looking to buy and sell their investment properties, mostly buy and hold stuff, some flips. When I was looking back through my transactions, 2018 and 2019, what I realized was in the first half of 2018, I actually was able to find cash flow on market for clients. (laughs) And now I can't. What my sales is gonna feel fairly anecdotal compared to the massive businesses these guys have. But what I'm seeing on the market now, early 2019, is that there are kind of three types of investment property, or all of the investment properties that hit the MLS kind of fall into three categories. There's the stable, ready-for-market stuff that's listing too high and selling too high really fast. There is the stuff that really needs a gut rehab that is appropriately priced and lasts like minutes on market. And then there's some stuff in the middle where there are people who think that they can get good market value for a property that needs some work, mostly because it's been neglected. And that stuff is really coming from sellers who have seen this hot, bullish market for so long that they think it's basically time that they sell their junk because they're never going to be able to get what they think they can get right now for it. And that stuff sits on the market for a while. I've had a lot of clients look at a lot of those recently. So you have the double the size of your portfolio currently under contracts, right? You have 18 units, and now yeah. you have 24 under contract. Yeah, So clearly, last year to this year, you've been able to grow. The biggest difference would be in off-market lead generation for those properties. I do more off-market now, so have the capacity to buy a 24-unit now with partners that I didn't have this time last year. 
So I could dive into this. Yeah. I, I would like to talk about it more later. Okay. But the summary is going to be that you really need to be finding deals off market, probably from a variety of sources if you're going to find good deals in Cincinnati right now. All right. We'll yeah. jump back to off market stuff. We'll bury the lead. So, Peter, what were you doing this year compared to last year? We're mostly status quo, right? We're primarily resale. We do work with investors that have found the opportunity and they're looking to take it to market, but that really just constitutes as a typical resale play. So the only thing that we're doing differently this year than last year is that we wound up spending more time negotiating multiple offers. Cincinnati's inventory continues to drop. It's dropped for four years straight. It dropped 20% per year, and over the past rolling 12 months, it's dropped another 12%. So we've seen the average sales price in Cincinnati increase Five to six percent per year for the past five years. Historic appreciation in Cincinnati is three percent, so we've been doing double the appreciation, right? Driven by the decrease in inventory, that is waning over the past twelve months. The average appreciation in Cincinnati is down to about four and a half percent, and inventory year over year is down twelve percent versus that twenty percent difference that we've seen. So, while prices have been doing this, they are still appreciating, but it's starting to level off a little bit. So anytime there's statistics, there's all different ways to slice and dice sure. the statistics. Yep. I read in your bio that you focus on 500K and below homes. Yep. Is that correct? So what about above? Are those stats still true? Yeah. Luxury softened up about two years ago. Luxury is different every city. In Cincinnati, we consider it a half a million dollars or more. I think part of the reason why is the people that have that kind of money, their, their value system that kind of dollar has changed. And so what we traditionally consider a luxury inventory, you know, these massive properties on big land, a lot of maintenance, isn't necessarily catering to the demands or the needs of the sort of next generation of luxury buyer. And so I think luxury is trying to figure out what does value look like in that segment. And from a business model perspective, luxury homes take more time, they take more maintenance, they're harder to sell, they require trickier marketing. We like to set things up, we have a system and we know it works, and so we try and keep them in that system. Knowing that the luxury market's soft, relatively yeah. speaking, mm-hmm. have you worked with any clients to convert those big homes, lots of rooms, lots of land, yeah. to assisted living or anything like that? That's a great question, and the answer is no. It's never crossed my mind. Normally, our experience in the luxury, because we do still service luxury inventory, not as frequently as the non-luxury. Generally speaking, a luxury seller doesn't want to horse around with converting a property into a multifamily or an assisted living or something like that. They have demands in their lives and they just want to have a clean separation and get it done and have it be a business deal and obviously make the most, but not horse around with details. I was thinking more of the an investor coming in and reaching out Sorry. to to purchase those properties. That may be a, a discount relative to where they should be sure. because it's softer. Yeah, I would assume as long as the zoning makes sense, it's a great idea. And Kurt, you got a lot of loans going on. What's the difference between last year to this year? Well, I think the biggest difference in the lending sector would probably be investor, especially in Cincinnati being in the Midwest. We have a very attractive real estate portfolio overall. So we're bringing a lot of outside investment in compared to our cap rates to what lending rates are. It's a nice spread. So I think that compared to last year, this time, more of that outside investment is coming in. It's getting more attractive. Rates are fluctuating. The Fed went up a couple times. They're looking to come back down tomorrow, per se, if the bond market's already reacted. And with that, people need to find a place to put their money. The economy's good. People have discretionary income. And with that, outside investment's coming here harder because 
we have very low vacancy rates, very good growth rates. We have great job market. So I would have to say overall, probably just investors. There's more of them. So help me reconcile the, in some ways, contradictory information. Because I hear the market softening. I hear it's tough to find deals. Sorry. And I, I, let me clarify with what I say that I say about investment property, specifically. Okay. So he may say in the luxury market. Well, he was saying 500 and below, it's 20% inventory. On the residential side, uh-huh. whereas I look at it more as multifamily investing, single-family blankets, industrial flex, office space, things like that. That is more where I'm finding more outside investors coming in, not just from East Coast and West Coast, but other countries. There's The Midwest market is very attractive, and that's more so what I would say when I say investors coming out. I do completely agree that inventory is very low, but in the basic economics of supply and demand, the demand is overabundant and the supply is not there. Got it. I should have broadened my mind a little bit. You're loaning on more than just single-family homes. Correct. Got it. So I guess I should have asked that. What are you loaning on? Anything from single-tenant investment properties to 250-unit multifamily properties, office, industrial, flex spaces, self-storage warehouses, you, you name it. You said international investors are working with you? Not necessarily with me as much. They're more coming into the Midwest, and a lot of times those deals are harder to do because you have to find international banks that not only can service that to do an actual loan, but get them qualified. So a lot of it is more coming in the form of cash. Got it. So Slocum, off-market stuff. How are you finding deals now? And, well, let's start with that. So there are some great people in the room right now who do a lot of off-market lead generation. And we'll probably all say that you start with building a list of people that you want to be able to contact. For whatever reason, they own property in Cincinnati, don't live in the area, they are delinquent on paying property taxes, they live in the specific neighborhood you want to specialize in. You get a list built and then you figure out how you can contact all of those people. What I've been doing specifically is I have a team of people who work for me who use public record data, mostly from county auditors' websites, to create the lists of people that I want to contact. And then we work on finding contact information, mostly phone numbers. And then all of my lead generation starts with cold calls. So I have people who work for me who make calls full-time, and I make some calls as well, depending on the property. How do you find the people who work for you? I use VAs, virtual assistants. I found a company that is now called Upwork that is great for finding people who can do remote work. All of the people that work for me in lead generation are in the Philippines. And do you have one point of contact with Upwork? And then I'm familiar with Upwork. Do you have one sure. virtual assistant who then has a team that they manage, or do you manage multiple virtual assistants? I found an agency based out of the Philippines, and one of the two founders of that agency now works for me full time, and she helps me find other people who can fill other roles. She's found three different callers for me. She does the initial interview. She preps them to be interviewed by me, and then I interview them. We go through a couple of practice calls, and then they're off to the races. What are they compensated? They are compensated between 5 and $7 an hour plus bonuses after I close a deal, whether I buy it myself 
or sell it and get a commission or some sort of fee. When we get to the end and I'm getting paid, I make sure that they get some of that. But it's a pretty low hourly rate until then. So they get an hourly rate plus bonus yep. whenever you close. So it's five to seven hourly rate. Dollars per hour. Prior to closing, and then once yep. closing, what do you give them for a bonus? I give the manager, the person who made the call, and the person who works on the back end making sure my callers have their lists. She really just does data entry, but there's a lot of data entry involved. These people are making thousands of calls a week. I give each of them $100. Got it. And how do you get the phone numbers? How do I get the phone numbers? There are a few different sources, and I'm doing some more just general scrubbing of the internet to find owners of LLCs that own properties and things like that. I have used Cole Realty Resource, which Cole Information is a big data company. Cole Realty Resource is what they use for real estate agents specifically who are looking for contact information for property owners in the area where they sell. I've been using Cole Information to cross-reference with the property owner list that I'm creating from public records to see who I can find contact info for. Anything else about that process that is relevant to talk about? Well, I would say that the kind of lead generation, regardless of whether you are cold calling, you're hiring people to cold call, you're sending direct mail, you're doing stuff on the internet, when you get to the point of being successful enough to create a full-time income for yourself, that's a pretty serious commitment of investment dollars, but you can build up to that. So I didn't have three, four, five VAs in the Philippines working for me at the beginning. I was doing it myself and sending a few postcards and then using the revenue from that to scale up into bigger things. If you did not close on a property in one month, but you had the team in place, how much would you pay expense-wise for that team? About $2,000. Peter, so we've got a bunch of investors in the room, a bunch yep. of investors watching and listening. What are some relevant things you think they should know in this market based on your expertise? I think Coleman nailed it. It's really hard to buy cash flow right now, right? If you're going Slocum. to the EMS. What did I say? Slocum. Coleman. Slocum. <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it. That was good stuff, so we want to give him credit. Yeah, <laughs> totally good stuff. Yeah, you, it's hard to buy cash flow right now. If you go to the MLS, it has to be off-market. Uh, it's, it's going to these kinds of events. Obviously, it's where you're going to find your opportunities. If you can buy something right, it's super easy to sell something. If you're if flipping is easier to do, I think, than buying and holding right now in terms of, of making cash, right? I think that's easier to do because I want to make sure I, was, I clarified the market is not softening. The rate at which we're appreciating is decreasing, but we are still appreciating. Right, right, right. So, yeah, I misconstrued that. Okay. My bad. So you still have margin for error just naturally, right? Over time, an in inventory is more valuable than it is two or three months ago because we're in a hot market, and that's not going to change the second half of this year. So the wins in your sales, if you can find the opportunity, it's really kind of hard to mess it up right now from a resale perspective. So I think you mentioned that to buy a cash-flowing property, you should get them off market. Your real estate agent. So you put properties on market. So yes. the properties that you put on market, yep. are they typically not cash flowing properties? Typically, the amount of work that we do with investors is small relative to the total amount of volume that we do. So I'll be totally transparent about that. We are finding ourselves working with more and more investors in the last six months or so a year. And 
with investors, they will typically find the opportunity and bring us in to make sure that they've got their projected sales price correct, and then we'll help them move the property once they're done with it. Sometimes we'll consult with work to do on the property. Now that we've kind of gotten into the scene a little bit more, we are finding off-market opportunities present themselves, so we obviously share those with our investors first, and then if not, we'll take them to the MLS, but in this market, they never get there, right? Mm -hmm. Unless they've been picked over and they stink most part. So I'm an investor. I have a single family home. I go to you to list it. What are some things that you're going to do either from a marketing standpoint or positioning the property itself that will maximize the value when you list it? Love that question. Well, there's a couple things that you hire an agent for. One obviously is the exposure. We generate more exposure. The second one is the negotiating skills. And I think the third one is positioning from a pricing perspective, and then also positioning within the realtor community, right? So on the marketing front, marketing used to be classified out in the newspaper. We all know it's gone to the internet. So the question is, how do you more than just stick it on Zillow, right? Yeah. What are the additional activities that you take online to generate additional interest? What is your reputation within the agent community? How do you move the property within the agent community? And how do you market directly to consumers? So those are all kind of what you look to an agent to do on the marketing front. And then you got to price something right, right? Even in a market where everything sells quickly, if you overprice, you still leave money on the table because a properly priced home will go into multiples and you'll yield more return on your investment than you will if start the price too high and, and let the market figure it out. I love that. So let's get into some specifics on both those points. Sure. When you're looking at pricing, is there a formula that you use yeah. for what's too high, what's too low, what's just right? Yeah, so I'm a data nerd. So we definitely do a data-driven pricing analysis with our clients. So we'll figure out, well, how do you segment the market correctly? Because is it driven by school districts? If it's so, by the elementary level? Is it driven, obviously, by beds and baths, certainly square footage, the floor plan, parking? And different things matter differently to value in different neighborhoods, right? Downtown, a parking spot is gold. You know, if you're out in the burbs, parking spot is assumed. Half bath in older homes like a Hyde Park or Pleasant Ridge adds huge resale value and the speed with which you can sell it, and yet it's an assumption in Mason, right? So different things drive value in different neighborhoods. So that's a critical component is identifying what is the true market segment you're operating in. You look at supply, you look at demand, you look at obviously what has sold recently as well as what you're competing with. And you'll also look at what you didn't sell because that's data as well. In addition to homes that you know that may be coming on the market that you're gonna be in direct competition with. When you look at supply and demand, mm -hmm. What exactly are you looking at? Well, an appraiser is going to look at any sales that sold uh, in the past six months. So by default, as real estate agents, we only want to use data that is no less than six months old. We're going to look at past sales as a way of identifying how many sales sold in this market segment over a certain period of time, and we're going to compare that with how many homes on the market. A balanced market in residential real estate is five to six months worth of inventory. That is to say, if we look at the past 12 months and 12 homes sold, your absorption rate would be two homes sold per month. Then we would look and we would say, okay, how many homes are on the market? Well, if there's six on the market and two homes sell per month, that would mean there would be three months worth of inventory. So a balanced market is five to six months worth of inventory. Over six months of inventory is oversupplied, buyer's market, less than five months is undersupplied, seller's market. And Cincinnati has continued to go down and down and down, generally speaking, in aggregate. And in some neighborhood, it's a matter of weeks now worth of supply, which is fun. Yeah, right. If you're selling. <laughs> if your investor stinks. Right, yep. Great info. From a marketing standpoint, you said you want someone who's not just going to post it on Zillow yep. and wash their hands of it. So what specifically 
does your group do? Yep, love that question. So we're a big believer in teasing the market to create urgency. So luckily the MLS has enabled us to systemize this a little bit. Well, it's called like a coming soon. And so we'll try and drive up some urgency within the agent community because all their clients are starved for inventory as well as directly to consumers. And that's done through various portals. You can pay a premium to promote that availability coming. Portals. We use social media. We pay in social media to put that in front of prospective buyers. We will market that to our own database of buyers, which is about 14,000 buyers right now. And in addition to that, we'll work the Asian community, both on the NLS and then through some various communities that we're a part of. And if you do that right, it creates a frenzy. Anybody can sell a home right now. The question is, how much money do you leave on the table? Because we actually love, and I'm a quick sideline, we love when our, when our clients are interested in a for sale by owner because we're not competing with the 4,500 other agents in Cincinnati and their clients, right? So we know we're not going to get stuck in a multiple offer situation. We can get that deal for them for less. Mm -hmm. So we love to agitate in public and within the agent community through paid digital efforts. And then part of it's just old-fashioned networking with the agent community. And then in our reality, in our physical space, we'll do door knocking, we'll do flyers, we'll do call campaigns around a property to drive up interest and activity because everybody knows somebody that wants to move into a neighborhood so we'll hammer in that community and create some urgency within the local neighborhood as well. Does your client pay for the door knocking and the flyers? Sure, that's part of the commission. Yeah, it's part of the commission. They pay us when we're closed. Right, so at what price point is it worth it for your company to do that level of effort? That's an awesome question. What we found was that it didn't make sense when we got into lower price points, and so now we just charge a different commission rate or a flat fee, and then they'll get the exact same service as someone who has a half million dollar home. Okay, so anything less than 500K, you'll either charge it. So the way we do it is, typically, we're not price fixing here, typically agents charge around 6%, right? Under 150, we'll generally charge 7%. Under $100,000, we generally charge 7,000 flat fee. Now, these are for individual clients. So if you have, and I'm not shopping here or, or yeah, selling from stage, thing. but if it is a multiple iteration client, then obviously that's something that we're going to talk about. And what have you done that was a waste of money and time that you no longer do from a marketing standpoint? Uh, where do we start? Buses, bench boards, signs <laughs> over urinals. <laughs> I have done it. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, you know, housing that's tours. That's what you're going to be associated with. I mean, right? <laughs> I, was just, I just want to be different and cut through all the chatter, right? So I've learned a lot. And anybody who's in real estate, if you ask me first before you spend the money, because I can tell you if it works or not. Oh, not ask that <laughs> Kurt, based on your experience, what should this group know that would be relevant and helpful to them based on your experience? As investors, coming from my banking background inside out to the broker world, I would tell you, be smart. It's a seller's market. If you're selling, good for you. If you're buying, be smart. With the way cap rates are now, if you take something on market, it's slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. And as we're in the looming hours of tomorrow where they may or may not cut the Fed fund rate, is that really going to do much to the treasuries? Has the bond market already gone out and lowered rates already? They've already reacted. I shouldn't say been proactive. So is your margin thin between your cap rate and your interest rate? Is there a lot of meat on the bone for you? No. So you have to be smart about your underwriting. What I can tell you is that going back to your initial question of this time last year, Warren over to Claremont, take that in a nutshell, and you see 
vacancy rates that used to be 6% just hit 4.9. That's good. It's good for investors. That's good. Like I said, we're in a good economy. Things are going well. Rates are low. It's advantageous for investors, but it's really advantageous for sellers. So be careful. Be careful when you're underwriting. Make sure you're putting in reserves. Make sure you're looking at the CapEx. Make sure that you're doing your own due diligence. And you mentioned CapEx and reserves. Thinking about an example of a previous client who came to you to underwrite or to get a loan, and you said can't do it based on the numbers that you're showing, what were the categories of numbers where it just didn't work? If that situation has happened to you. In regards to making improvements for increased rents? or They wanted a loan. They couldn't get a loan because of how they were underwriting. Where did they mess up? Sure. The biggest thing, when you're four units and under, you can take it in the residential world where you can pass on your DTI. If your DTI is there and you can do it with a W-2 wage, you can overpay. You can overpay all day long. And that's going to be a shame on me. I learned my lesson the first time around. When you start getting to the five units and more, that's where you're going to be based on a cash flow coverage. When you're based on a cash flow coverage, you need to learn with the bank that you apply with, how do they apply that? Are they going to, because we're at a 4.9% vacancy rate, even though the property you're buying is 100% occupied, are they always going to put in a 5% vacancy rate? Yes. Well, I'm going to self-manage my property. Fantastic. We're still going to put in a 5% property management fee. It's going to happen no matter what. So your margins can get thin. You know, will they do FNMA agency type debt, a requirement of 250 a door? Are they going to base you on 150 bucks per door on insurance, even though you have a better quote? Those are the type of questions that you need to find out. Where are you going to take this loan? Where are you going to go with it? Who's going to be looking at it? Is your broker, is your banker going to be addressing those issues up front? Are you doing a value-add deal where you're going to add CapEx? Hey, I can still increase this right now by 200 bucks a door, but I need stainless steel appliances. I need to repaint the cabinets. I need to put down new flooring. Is that going to yield that? Is your pro forma still going to show at a 95% occupancy where while you're going through stabilization, while you're still in an interest only period, with a lower stabilization, is still going to be able to cash flow? So those are the type of questions. Sorry, didn't mean to get too much into it. That's good. Thank you. The biggest thing about investors is there's a big cutoff, four units and under and then five units and above. Mm-hmm. And it's a game changer. It's a game changer no matter if you're starting out with one unit or going straight into 12. It's things that you really have to consider and, and read up on and learn about to be able to get your finances to build your business. As we wrap up, anything that we haven't talked about that we should as it relates to helping everyone in this room and watching and listening be successful in finding and buying profitable deals now and in the foreseeable next 6 to 12 months in Cincinnati? Sure. Moving forward, there are several things that are impacting the market and cash flow, cap rates, things like that. One thing that I don't think is going to change now is that in the last few years, the rest of the real estate investing world has found us and they're not going anywhere. What I mean is that the people who are used to getting four caps, five caps, six caps on the East Coast and the West Coast, they've found bigger pockets and they've found Cincinnati. And when they figured out that they could get an eight cap to a 10 cap on market here, it sucked all the wind out of the room. And that's what a lot of us have been experiencing. On that, so I was listening to the Bigger Parks podcast uh, at least a couple of years ago, and Tim Ferriss was on, wrote the four hour work week and basically everything else about business. 
and this is worth listening to. I was in a rental car on my way back to the airport in Maryland, and when I heard what Tim Ferriss had to say to Brandon Turner and Josh Dorgan, I had to pull off on the side of the highway, put my blinkers on, and write notes. Because... We were having trouble finding deals, and he was explaining the three advantages to making any business decision. The first is an informational advantage, the second is an analytical advantage, and the third is a behavioral advantage. Working backwards, a behavioral advantage in figuring out whether or not you should buy or sell real estate probably has a lot to do with your discipline. Does it meet your criteria for what you should do? Are you stretching yourself because you're desperate, or are you maintaining good investing behavior? The other two are something that I think everyone needs to have in order to get a good deal in Cincinnati right now. An analytical advantage is when you have a way of seeing something that other people don't have. For example, if you have a building, let's say a duplex, where both of the units have three bedrooms, right now, market rent for that, depending on the neighborhood, I'm thinking about a property in a C-class neighborhood right now, your market rent might be $850, but Section 8 is going to pay $1250 for that same apartment. So knowing those kinds of things gives you an analytical advantage and allows you to see cash flow and see benefits to a deal that other people aren't seeing. The last one, informational advantage, is when you know things that other people don't know, and that's what you have when you're going off market. And when I say going off market, I don't necessarily mean that you need to spend thousands of dollars a month in postcards and SEO and, and cold calling and door knocking every evening. But you need to know the people who are doing that, who are putting together the deals off market that are showing serious cash flow, that are showing the 10 caps, 12 caps, that are showing the real value add potential that creates what we call burr deals. You need to have that hustle somewhere, either you or with the people in your network, so that you have that informational advantage. Any additional thoughts? I can only speak to five families and less. That's the commercial world is these guys. If you're looking at five units or less, just to your point, protect yourself. Everybody's paying premiums right now, so make sure you've got an agent looking at that property and making sure that your plan B, the cash flow isn't there, which is selling the property, make sure you're buying it such that you'll be able to get out and sell it and at least break even. I think that's a huge, huge piece of creating insurance for yourself when it's so competitive acquiring inventory right now. Any parting thoughts? All I can say is be diligent and uh, be patient because a lot of people are trying, like Slocum said before, be patient because people are trying to make deals happen just because they're itchy that they're not meeting that 24-month, 36-month, five-year goal that they don't have so many units. Don't get wrapped up in the unit count. Get more wrapped up in... Is it cash flowing? Remember, your first one with a bank is always your proof of concept. If you didn't do it right the first one, you're not cash flowing, who's going to give you a second one? So be diligent, be patient. Cool. Well, thank you, three. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having We got time for a couple questions. Yes, sir. So when you guys mentioned things like inventory, appreciation rates, and those things when they affect the market, if you saw a downturn coming, what would be the red lights that are blinking? Like, is it an inventory rate of X? Is it an appreciation of X? Is it a bond market? Is it unemployment? And what would be those numbers where it's flashing and you're like, okay, here comes some bond? 
So if you watch sold data, it's too late. You have to be watching the ratio of active inventory to the ratio of inventory that's under contract waiting to close. When you're in up market, that's where you're going to see the trend before it bites everybody else in the butt. Shameless plug, we do a weekly, excuse me, a monthly video email to our people with an economic, just hitting the economic indicators that drive our market and serve some color on what we think that means. If you guys are interested, just email peter at asktcg.com uh, and I'll add you to that list. But you got to watch the ratio between pending inventory and active. What's the ratio that would be trouble? You look at the number of units that have traditionally sold over a six-month period. That's your absorption rate. How does the pending inventory over a 30-day time correlate to that monthly absorption rate in the sold area? And if it starts creeping up, that's your first indicator. The second, which is another way of saying watching the increase in inventory. Inventory is going to go up or demand is going to drop. Normally, it's a little bit of both, and then all of a sudden, it's really extreme. So you got to be watching that the, the lead indicators, not the lag indicators. Does that answer your question? Yeah, well, that's one. I mean, but is there other factors? Like you mentioned bond market oh. is, you know, and then there's obviously like appreciation and or, I mean, that inventory, that's awesome. There's, is there other ones that are kind of blinking? The bond market can be tricky. It depends. Yeah. Um, if you historically look at how agency treated multifamily compared to the interest rates that the bond market did on treasuries, it potentially could be an indicator. But then it's hard to say, and I say that because look at the interaction with the Fed itself. Is Look what they did last year. They bumped it up. They bumped it up a couple times. And a lot of people that were had revolving debt lines of credit, not that monthly installment like a mortgage, but that revolving credit card debt, everybody's tied to prime on their home equity line of credit, uh, you're flipping, you're tied to some type of base, you're probably most likely prime, or you could be live or whatnot, but when that happens, your rates are going up, and the one absorbing that is the investor, And when, but that leads into so many more indicators, that leads into that discretionary spending not being there when times aren't good, that leads into not as much consumption in GDP. That leads into so many things that get reactionary because I believe the official definition of a recession is the previous two quarters of downward trends. You don't know you're in a recession until it's already happened. I hope you guys are taking notes. I'm on the panel right now and I'm taking notes. <laughs> so I hope you guys are getting as much out of this as I am. Can I plus that up just a little bit? Sure. The two other indicators to watch. Interest rates, GDP, and unemployment drive home values at a residential level. I don't know about commercial, it's all about return on investment, but residential, those are the three drivers. So you can speak to rates. Our unemployment dropped from 3.6 to 2.9, and uh, GDP has expanded as well. So there's no indicators that would demonstrate we're going anywhere except for our continued appreciation in values. Cool. In the Australia. What's that? I think 27 years. Australia's had uh, good economic times for 27 years in a row. That's why they're so happy. (laughs) (laughs) So if a recession were on the horizon, how would that change your investment perspective and or how do you see the Cincinnati market going for next 12, 18 months? I can start. So, yeah, the first thing I do is to answer your question is go on BiggerPockets and Google search recession-proof. And you'll find oodles and oodles of things. I would say if we were in a downturn or if we were preparing for a downturn, number one, have cash. And number two, cash flow can keep you from needing to sell. Really, one of the fundamental things, and when you're buying your first rental property especially, one of the things that 
you want to avoid is the need to sell. So if you're bringing in the revenue that can sustain your properties, there are a lot of people around the room nodding heads who have larger portfolios than me, FYI. And if you have the cash flow coming in, that will keep you afloat and keep you ideally generating income. As the market dips, you're going to be fine. So long as nothing else is compelling you to sell at a time that is disadvantageous, if that makes sense. And really, if you want to make sure that your cash flow is going to be okay in a market that is turning down, you want to make sure that what you own is not a niche product that is only desirable in an up market. So that is a way to play defense, and I completely agree with you. You can search three immutable laws of real estate investing. I got an article that talks about that buy for cash flow, have long-term debt, and have adequate cash reserves. That's awesome. But how would you play offense? Have cash is a great way to play offense. One of the ways to look at market cycles is that there are times when everyone wants to buy and there's nothing for sale, and there are times when everything's for sale and no one wants to buy. And really the answer would be for playing offense, the question to be asking yourself now is how do you put yourself in a position to be one of the few people able to buy when everything is for sale? And I also think that studying creative ways to structure deals, if you're in residential, creative ways to structure deals so that when the recession does come, you already have that knowledge to know how to do workouts with distressed sellers so that you're not trying to learn and go. You've got the knowledge, and then you can get going immediately. Yeah. Awesome. Any other questions? What do you think specifically for the Cincinnati real estate market, maybe as the fewest days on market, maybe for residential, or if you're an investor, where do you think you put your money today, even with how it is, where you can invest like the path of progress if you had to, like Madisonville, Pleasant Ridge, Deer Park, any of those local areas like that? So all I would say is that economically, first-time buyers have never felt a a bigger pinch on inventory in that first-time buyer market segment. So wherever first-time buyers are buying and whatever that price point is, is where you can pop things as quickly and for the biggest return. What is that price point? Yeah, I was going to say, generally in Cincinnati, it's anywhere from up to, I should say, 175 to maybe 250, 275 in like the young professional white-collar entry-level inventory. When I get asked that question by out-of-state investors, typically people who are trying to look for their first real estate investment deal, someone who lives in L.A. or New York, for example, and wants to come here for cash flow, the generic but accurate and helpful answer that I give during that little phone call, if you're talking about path of progress, is look at over the Rhine in downtown and look at Oakley, and then expand out in rings. Very, very generally speaking, what we're seeing elevator pitch wise is that those two areas are crazy hot with new development, with renovations, with lots of money getting invested. And that's rippling into the surrounding neighborhoods. And so when you talk about path of progress, what I tell people who are on their laptop on the phone with me on Google Maps is put a pin in over the Rhine and put a pin in Oakley and then just go out from there and start looking like that. That's a great one. I think maybe the easiest way to sum that up is follow the money. The first-time home buyers, where are they putting their money? Where are they getting that debt? Where are the projects going on? What areas being regentrified? Is there city money? Is there tax abatements? Where are they being approved at? 
where's the redevelopment of the strip centers or the little town? Follow that. On those ripples of those areas of Oakland, you could have followed Madisonville. And look at the multi-million dollar developments going on down there. So just look at the ripples and then follow the money. Last question. Anyone got a last question? Got to be a good one. Pressure zone. One thing, shameless plug for each of these guys. They're both phenomenal. Kurt is working on his second commercial mortgage for me right now. And his knowledge of the market and what you can get away with in lending is phenomenal. He's a wizard. (laughs) And that was appropriately put, by the way. The commercial game is a lot about what you can get away with. And Peter Chabri is a genius. He's been helping me a lot in my own business and figuring out how to do lead generation better, how to have better systems and better infrastructure. So if you get the opportunity before you leave, you should definitely shake hands with both of these guys. All right, thanks a lot. Oh, he's great too. He's so good. If you own a rental property, TransUnion Smart Move can help you identify the right renter from the start so you can avoid the problems of non-payment or evictions. Don't put yourself at risk. Go to tenantscreening.com, create a free account, enter the code FAIRLESS at checkout for 25% off your next screening. With TransUnion Smart Move, you'll get great reports, great convenience, great tenants. Are you ready to close more deals and officially seal your financial freedom? The Dwellin' Show with Ola Dantis discloses the most innovative real estate investing strategies to kickstart your quest to financial freedom. Go listen at com forward slash show. That's com forward slash show.